For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. The plot thickens here in the story of Esther as the villainous Haman deceives the king into signing an order to wipe out the entire Jewish race. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, The Lot Was Cast. All righty, good evening. Let's get started with Esther chapter 3. And pick up where we left off. Last week we'll do as we always do and ask the Lord to help us with our study tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just acknowledge what Jesus taught us, that apart from him and your good spirit, we can do nothing. So we just ask, Lord, that you would bless tonight, that these words would would come to life as they are truly the word of God. Father, you brought our, 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 you guided our paths here tonight for a reason. You have a purpose, so help us to hear with with intentionality that, that God is trying to comfort us or instruct us or to correct us so that we could know something we didn't know and experience something we hadn't before we were here tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In September of 2009, Al-Qaeda trained Najibullah Zazi from Afghanistan was arrested in New York City for leading a conspiracy to blow up the New York City subway system. It would be during rush hour, and it would be uh, three coordinated attacks, um, and they almost got away with it. Now, the former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder said that one of, uh, this was one of the most serious terrorist threats uh, to our nation since 9-11. Now, the reason it didn't happen and that thousands of people didn't die that day under the uh, streets of Manhattan, uh, the conspiracy was uncovered. And it turns out that the good old Scotland Yard uh, intercepted an email from a senior Al-Qaeda a militant uh, to this Afghani-born um, terrorist in the United States. They intercepted it, and uh, there was last-minute instructions on how to do the deed. And so the Scotland Yard uh, talked to the FBI who arrested him and them uh, just in the nick of time. So the conspiracy was uncovered. The plot was averted lives were saved, and the bad guy and the accomplices uh, got what they had coming. Uh, Now, this is the story, really, of Esther. A conspiracy uncovered, a plot averted, lives saved, and the bad guy is going to get, as they say, his comeuppance. And so, uh, only on an even more a uh, serious scale, the casualties of this plot that we talk about here in the book of Esther 
It's not about hundreds or even thousands of people perishing, but sadly, in this conspiracy, uh, it would be into the millions. And to up the drama even more, it's God's people who are in the crosshairs uh, tonight. Uh, so uh, if God's people perish, and why does this matter? And we always talk about this. Uh, it matters because it's God's people. And if they perish, uh, so does the hope for the world, right? And because uh, God's people are tied to many promises. And uh, so hope for the world and hope for uh, you and for me. So now we've met the stories, uh, the characters, I should say, in the story already. And the director, who is invisible and remains that way anonymously, and that's the point of Esther, the Holy Spirit did not forget to mention the name of God in the 10 chapters. It's on purpose because the, the, the sub-theme of the book of Esther is that God is at work when you can't see him. He's at work all the time on our behalf. And so uh, he, he, he is not visibly seen, but on every page you see him putting the characters in place and he is the one who is guiding uh, the plot for good. It's Romans 8.28 is a great New Testament scripture to sum up the book of Esther. For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so uh, uh, the cast of characters, the targets, we've already known the intended victims, of course, are the Jews scattered throughout uh, Persia, uh, the Middle East. I, I can go ahead and show you a map. This is what we're talking about. King Xerxes is in charge of the world. Uh, he's somewhere around here in the city of Susa, and he is married to Esther, who we've been hearing about. And uh, uh, the Jews are scattered all over here, and they live here. They have been allowed to return back to Israel, but right now, most of the Jews are not in Israel. They're scattered throughout the Middle East, mostly around Persia, uh, which is modern-day Iran, and also Iraq, which was old-day Babylon. And so, thank you for the map. So those are, are the, the attempt will be a genocide against the Jewish people, uh, and the conspirator is Haman. And this egomaniac, this villain... This uh, antagonist, the aggressor in the story, he, we've been told already, we've been introduced to him, uh, he is a descendant of the Amalekites who have been enemies of the Jews for the previous thousand years. It started in the Exodus with the Amalekites and God stated his uh, purpose against them. So this fella is yet uh, another descendant of the sworn enemies of Israel. And so as we saw last time, and so the context for picking up here in chapter three uh, is that Haman, the hater of the Jewish people, rises to power suddenly. Nobody knows how he got this promotion all of a sudden. And it is always a dangerous and scary thing when someone who hates the state of Israel with a passion uh, gets some power politically. And so he has found his way from a diabolical source to suddenly climb the ranks to be second in charge of the Persian Empire. It's the king and then the hater of the Jews. 
yeah, so the plot thickens, as they say. And so now uh, enter the Jew that's going to light Haman's fuse, right? And so this is what we saw last time, Mordecai. Mordecai is one, going to be one of the heroes. There are two heroes, and, and you know who the other one is, Esther. Right? And so he, he works as in the administrative center called the city gate or the king's gate. And he has some kind of job there. And so he's going to be a, a hero. He's already done a heroic thing, but he hasn't, been get, he hasn't gotten any recognition for it. Uh, he uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. And it got recorded in the royal journals, but the, not even a thank you. But that slight of not acknowledging his heroic deed that saved the life of the king, that very thing that he was overlooked is the thing that is going to end up saving the world, the, at least the, the, the Jewish people and the world, because if you don't have a Jewish people, you don't have a messianic line. If you don't have a messianic line, you don't have a savior, you see? And so this very terrible thing that happened to him, you know, look what I did and nothing, nobody said anything, not even a said, thank you card in the mail, nothing, you know? That thing, God says, shh, I'm working. Hold on. No good deeds uh, go unnoticed by God or unrewarded by God ever. Sometimes they trail behind, but the New Testament tells us it's impossible to suppress them. They catch up sooner or later. Amen? And so here's what ticks this Haman off here. Each day, haughty Haman, the prime minister, makes his way through the admin office, the city gate, where Mordecai works. And so he really lives for the praise and the applause of men. I mean, this is an insecure, egomaniac kind of guy where, you know, he's looking and counting heads. Are you bowing to me or not? And so interestingly, it said in the text last week that this guy at the king's command, the king had to command people to bow to him. Well, wouldn't you normally just bow to a dignitary? Everybody knows you kind of, you know, do that, right? But he's the kind of guy nobody wants to respect. And he's the kind of guy who told the king, would, you, would it be such a big deal if you made a command for everybody to kind of prostrate themselves when I walk through the front office? That's what he said. So the king said, okay, yeah. So there was this law on the books. Every time Haman struts through, everybody, oh, make a big deal. You know, well, there's this Jew named Mordecai. And he comes through the office. And every time he came through, Mordecai just stands there like, hello. But he's not going to bow like everybody else. And, and, and his coworkers, his Iranian coworkers say to him, Persia's Iran, and says to him, well, are you crazy? The king commanded it. You know, he's kind of forcing us. And so he had to play the race card. He had to come out and say, but it's not because Jews couldn't show respect to dignitaries. It's because he knows he's an agagite. He's an agagite. <laughs> Try to say it. It's not easy. Agagite. Yeah, it's not, it's not pretty either. He's a descendant of an Amalekite, you see. And so he says, I'm a Jew, you know, just to say, listen, uh, you know, it's against my religion, all right? And so word gets back to Haman, 
there's this guy, he's not bowing. And Haman says, what's his problem? He says, it's against his religion. And he says, may I ask what religion that might be? And he says, he's a Jew. So he does a trial run. And last week we saw it. He comes down the stairs. He looks over the office. He eyes a path. And he struts through. And he looks straight at Mordecai. And Mordecai returns to gaze. Not going to bow. And so he said, perfect. I have a reason not only to kill him, but to get rid of all the Jews on the face of the earth. And he's going to start now with a desire and a, a, a conspiracy to do just that. One thing he doesn't know is that the king, his boss, is married to Miss Persia. They just searched the whole world for her, and he fell head over heels for this beautiful Queen Esther and put not only a beauty pageant crown on her head, but the crown to Persian empire of gold upon her head. And she rules with her husband. She's queen, and she's a Jew. Uh-oh. <laughs> Well, to the crooked, what? You show yourself crude. God is at work. All right, so the opening verse, verse 7, is where we pick up. In the 12th year of King Xerxes then, now he's seething, he's going to do a plan. In the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur. that's a Babylonian word that means the lot. They cast the lot in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell to the 12th month, the month of Adar. So we got to pause quickly here. I know it's only one sentence. We're only going to make it through the chapter tonight. Uh, but it's pretty important key verse because it's where you get the name of Purim, which is a Jewish holiday, which the Lord doesn't really institute, but Mordecai institutes it uh, later in the book. And so it's to celebrate the events of this very book. And they named the holiday after what almost cost them their existence, the cast of the lot, or pura in the Babylonian language, or, or, or the, the lot. And so we're going to talk about that. So first of all, a date needed to be set, you know, to annihilate uh, Haman's enemies, right? And so uh, a pagan version of what the Israelites used to do, the, the Jewish priests with prayer led by the Lord, uh, they would do this, some kind of sanctified system with this, um, uh, a way to determine yes and no questions before the Lord. And now we have the Holy Spirit and we, we, we have the word of God. So we don't cast lots. But uh, this was a way different version. This was like involving animal innards, and as I was reading, it was very disgusting to see what they do. It was very much like witchcraft, and so what Haman did is he wants a lucky day to pull this thing off, you know, to, to commit genocide, it needs to be the right time, you know, so he, they're casting spells and looking for omens and consulting the stars and the gods, lowercase g, 
And they rolled the dice or whatever it means in, in Iran there in those days uh, over each day in the calendar. And bingo, one of the priests had, goes into a seizure, you know, foaming at the mouth and the eyes roll back. And he says, the 13th of Adar is kill God's people day. You know, whatever. I mean, they didn't understand what they were doing. But it's pretty funny that he rolls the dice, as it were, and up comes a date 11 months down the road. <laughs> 11 months. He wants to kill them tomorrow. You know, so the, the Lord is like, watch this. You know. 11 months. I've got to wait a whole year? You know what? That's going to give the Jews time. Time to, to deal with this. Time for uh, somebody to, to, to institute a rescue plan uh, like Mordecai and the queen. You know, so God is at work. But, you know, at first he's thinking, you know, he's, he's disappointed, of course, right? He's got a lot of anger. He's got a wounded ego. This guy didn't bow down to me. So I want to kill everybody related to him. Right? Does that make sense? Well, it makes sense to insecure and self-absorbed people. All they care about is themselves. And they are visually impaired. They cannot see past like here. And, and, and it's pretty sad. So... On second thought, he probably consoles himself with the thought, you know, I got a whole year to watch the Jews panic. I got a whole year to see them flee. And guess who gets their assets when they flee? He's going to make sure he plunders them. So he kind of concludes it's all good. You know, I've got 12 months. So let's see what happens, 8 through 11. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, okay, he's got his date, right? So, same day, he's in the throne room. There's a, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king... Let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamed Atha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. This is the title the Holy Spirit wants to give this Agagite. Son of this dude, <laughs> Haman. So let's talk about that. So we've seen the lot. So note takers, if you're taking notes, we've seen the lot, and now we're going to see the lie. The lot is cast, and now the lie is told. So liar, liar, you know, this megalomaniac is not wasting any time. So he gets his date on the calendar for Kill God's People, the, the, the Empire National Day. And he goes to the throne room right away uh, to hatch the plot, right? It was Walter Scott who said, right, the British novelist, early 1800s, he said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, right? What does he mean? It means sometimes we get stuck 
in our own webs, you know? Uh, to put it biblically, sometimes the hole we dig for others, we ourselves stumble into. That's Psalm 7 and verse 15. He goes on to say in Psalm 7, says, his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. Well, certainly a major lesson and takeaway from the book of Esther is really watch out for revenge or aggressiveness uh, of any kind. You just really need to be careful about that. Let me give you a quick, uh, I mean, we're going to see this in, in dramatic ways with this dude, right? But let me give you a story. Let me tell you a story a pastor friend told me about someone in his congregation. So it goes like this. A very influential person in the congregation who gave a lot of money had a son who was in their youth group. And the son butted heads with the youth pastor. And the youth pastor, according to my pastor friend, didn't do anything wrong. The kid was just, just overreacting and got his feelings hurt because the youth pastor corrected him. Privately, his father got involved and went to the pastor and said, apparently, you don't know how much I give. And that's how it all started. He said, I don't like the way you treated my son. I think he has a lot to say about this youth pastor. And the pastor said, well, why don't we all get together and yada, yada, yada. And they all got together with all the elders and everybody was on the same page. The youth pastor didn't do anything wrong. This guy has been gossiping and causing trouble in the youth group. And everybody was on the same page and just said, we love you guys. We just got, there's a minor correction and it got huge. And, and, and the father emailed the head of the denomination and made up a whole bunch of lies about his friend, the pastor, to retaliate, right? Well, how did the pastor ever find that out? Well, the head of the denomination called the pastor and said, are you being sued or what's going on? The pastor said, I don't think I'm being sued. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, you know, who's this, this story? And Oh, it, oh, he goes, oh, yeah, that's nothing. That's about a youth pastor and a youth and nothing. It's a nothing story. Well, get a load of this. So the denomination forwarded the email to the pastor that his so-called longtime friend, congregation person, their congregant, you know, this, this guy, this influential guy, that they were really good friends with the wife and they had dinners together, and they knew each other for 10 years. And he read this fat email that had lie after lie after lie to get even with him for calling out or letting the youth pastor. And also, he corrected him as well, the pastor. And so the pastor read the letter filled with lies. And, and the, the, the denomination was just laughing, just saying, oh, yeah, we know. We know how this goes, no problem, right? So the pastor wasn't in trouble. So the pastor emailed the guy back his email. 
and to his wife and just said, I got forwarded these. Do you guys know? Do you guys recognize them? Yeah. <laughs> well, they left the church in... Sh- no. <laughs> they weren't even asked to leave. They left, but it was a shambles and the marriage took a huge hit because the wife saw what was going on with the husband. How could you make these stories up about our pastor and his wife and send them somewhere where it could do some harm to them? So the marriage suffered. He suffered. He had to leave the church. The family suffered. And why? He dug a hole for somebody. How dare you do that? All right. And nobody will ever know. And he hit send. But when you hit send, it can go boom. And it comes back and hits you right in the head. So my advice to all of us is be careful before you hit the send button. Amen. That is really what you are going to see here but not with an email and not with a little tension in a marriage and not with leaving a church. You're going to see somebody in three months from now be killed because he hit send. And when he hit send, he meant it to hurt somebody else. And it costs him his life. Twelve weeks. Haman's going to be hanging. Okay. Let's continue on. So verse 8, he's going to make up lies, right? And the best kind of lie has a little bit of truth in it. You, you do realize that, right? You don't just outright lie. You have to mix it with some truth. So it's hard to tell what is what going on. And so um, though the enemy really plot harm against God's people, God is counterplotting. I think that's a big takeaway is, is that we have an enemy and he is plotting. He schemes against all of us. First Peter chapter five says, you have an enemy. I mean, we don't always take it to heart, but he says, you have an enemy. He's called the devil and he's looking for someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. You know, submit unto God, resist the devil and he will flee. And so verse eight says, let's look at the lie. Uh, the lie is, this certain people, you know, we don't want to name them. We don't want to put faces on them, right? Because it's easier to kill a certain people than somebody with a name, right? So we need it dark and mysterious, this certain people, these foreigners out there, scattered all over your vast kingdom, you know, who have different customs. And here's the thing that really ticks people off. And it probably ticked the king off too, because we don't really like people who are different. They're different from everybody in the whole world, king. There's nobody who acts like that. There's nobody with their values. There's nobody who talks like them or thinks like them. They don't laugh at our jokes. They don't eat our food. They don't do anything we do. They work with a different work ethic. They're always doing something different. It's like they belong to another planet. They're marching to a different beat, a different drummer, and it just kind of, you know, they're odd. They don't fit in here. That's really what the king is already hearing is like, oh, 
Who wants that? I want perfectly little, perfect Persians, you know? And I don't want somebody who's always talking about some other place and some other way and some other morality, right? And so this is going to bug. Well, listen, um, uh, Moses, Deuteronomy 4. Of course they're different from everybody else. God Almighty picked a few people and said, you are going to represent me to the whole earth and there's going to be nobody like you on the whole planet. That's what he told them. And he said, for Moses speaking, for what great, Deuteronomy 4, for what great nation has a God as near to them as the Lord? Our God is near to us. Whenever we call on him, he's there. And, and what great nation has decrees or regulations as righteous and fair as the ones that he is giving us today? So, of course, they're different and oddballs in the world. And what did Jesus tell us? We are the New Testament church, right? What did Jesus say? The reason the world hates you, John 15, right, is, is that I've called you out of the world. The world doesn't recognize you anymore. That's the reason they don't like you. John chapter 15, that's what he says. First Peter chapter four and verse four says, they are surprised, the people in the world, that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and so they heap abuse on you. So this thing that kind of sticks in the craw of Haman and gives kind of the king a bad taste in his mouth, like this these people deserve to be destroyed, is that they don't fit in. They're not like us, and they rub us the wrong way. So, you know, guilty as charged, really. Guilty as charged, they, they're going to have to say. And, and, and here's the lie. So, so far, he said everything true. Now, here's the lie. And by the way, they don't obey your laws. Ah, uh, that's a lie. They're, he's saying they're criminals, they're lawbreakers, they're troublemakers, they're anarchists. Right? Flat out lie. Here's what the Lord expected of his people in exile. Here's what he said through Jeremiah. Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry and have children and grandchildren in, the, in this world of Persia. Right? He says, multiply. Do not dwindle away. And I love this line. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Be a blessing. Work for the peace, right? Serve there. Make it work. Be model citizens. That's what God expected, and that's what they were. There was no problem with the Jews. That was just a flat-out lie. So he says, since they're foreign-born oddballs who don't fit in here anyway, they're insubordinate anarchists, uh, always talking treason, you know, oh, king, live forever. <laughs> Your best interest, it's all about you. I'm looking out for you, king. I'm in here today because I love and care about you and Persia, and these people are not helping you. Right? What a liar. What a manipulator. What a deceiver. So he says, it's not to your best interest to keep them around. You should destroy them. And wait, there's more. He says, oh, I just happen to have 10,000 talents of silver. Talents is a, a unit of measure. It's a weight, right? So he says he's got 10,000 talents of silver that will be 
deposited into the palace bank account in verse 9. So uh, can, can we all say bribe? You know, it, it, it's a fortune, by the way. Xerxes' eyes popped out a little bit and he spit up a little bit. His wine cooler choked going down and he, and he said 10,000 talents of silver. That's, thir- that's 375 tons of silver. 750,000 pounds at $15 an ounce in today's market that is 180 million dollars where's he going to get that oh we'll tell you where he's going to get it he's going to get it from the jewish bank accounts that's what they did in world war ii that's what they do all the time Whenever they, they, they come in with war and military and, they, and uh, people have to get out, they, they, they plunder their homes and their accounts and their assets and their paintings and their jewelry boxes and their savings accounts and their homes and their properties and everything. I have relatives, Jewish relatives, World War II, before World War II, they were fleeing with my last name, only it sounded different. It was Reinerman. And my great uncle left property there and we were notified, my siblings and I, we were heirs to very small property that was left there in Europe, in Poland, when they fled. And, uh, you know, it didn't amount to very much, but it was kind of an interesting thing that happened and got in the mail. But that's exactly what happened. Those assets were stolen, and now there are laws in the book in, in Europe to, to give that money back. And they have genealogical societies that are tracing out. And that's how they found me, my mother, and my siblings. So it happens. And it was happening there. And so he's, he's like, I, I'm going to give you all this money if only you kill all the Jews. <laughs> the NIV says that he says, well, keep the, the money. It may not really imply a refusal. Really, in the Hebrew, it kind of says... The money and the people are yours to do with as you please. So he's really saying, thank you and use the money to do as you please with all of these people. So, so uh, you know, he's not saying, you know, I, didn't, I don't want that money. <laughs> he's not like that. Anyway, King Xerxes' uh, response, no questions. Where's the proof? What are their names? Who are these people? At least tell me who they are. Before we wipe them all out, can you give me just one example of what you're talking about? No. He's, he's the most irresponsible king in the entire Bible. He's like that. That's what he does. And so he's already messing around with his signet ring. And, you know, he's going to give him, it says there in verse 10, he's going to give him the, the signature stamp. Now, whenever I hear about this, I think of what they still do in Japan where we lived for four years as a missionary. Let me show you a picture of what's called a hanko. The hanko, I had one. Everyone in Japan has one. And, and what it is, is a stamp for your signature. They don't sign. They stamp their name. And so on the bottom of the hanko is an ink pad always in the case. You carry that with you. I always have my wallet, my keys, and my hanko. You can't go anywhere without it. It's your signature. It's your signet ring, right? And so they, they put their last name in kanji. Now, my last name, you can spell it out 
Rainman. And, and they have letters, it's called Romanji, and they have letters that they put vertically that says Rainman. And I stamp around like that, you know? And here's what it looks like, you know, just the image. So something like that, you know? That's kind of like what mine looked like, but they all look like that to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when we were driving around, thank you for that. Uh, You know, we lived in rural Japan, so it was hard because the signs were not in English, and we would drive around, and, uh, you know, there was one stoplight where it was crazy. It was green, yellow, and red, and they'd all light up at once. And I just never could figure out which one do you really mean, you know? But uh, the other funny thing was, was uh, the sign for the only way that we could figure out our town, Kanazawa, it looked like a moose's head. So we'd always be looking in the sign for a moose's head with the antlers, you know? But you know how hard that is? There are a lot of things that look like a moose's head with antlers that you could end up on the wrong side of Japan very easily. But be that as it may, um, King Xerxes' response is to take his honko, say, tosses his honko, the king's honko. And he just starts, gives, gives it to the hater of the Jews. It might as well have been the Hamas guy or the Hezbollah or, or Osama bin Laden. Here you go. Do whatever you want with the Jews. And here's my honko. That's just crazy. Let's see what happens now. We'll finish the chapter, then we'll be done. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own honko. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month the month of Adar, and plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Every nationality. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict, the order was issued at the fortress, in the fortress of Susa, the capital of Persia. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. All right, so what do we have here? We have the lot. The lot was cast. And then we have the lie. The lie was told. And now we have the law. The law is issued. So the edict goes out. Can we just show the map one more time? Just for, I mean, we're, we're talking all the way to the border of modern day India, all, all the way into uh, Turkey, to almost to Europe, 
right? Down into Northern Africa, when, when he's saying all the people and everywhere, and he, he mentions three layers of government, and it would be like kind of the senator, the governor, and the mayor. That's the corresponding titles, right? So, so the thoroughness in every language. Do you know how many languages there are? There are quite a few there. And in every language, this terrible edict was to be made known. 2.5 million square miles. There's a lot of Jews in there. It's a lot of Jewish people, a lot of lives. So verse 13, back to the text, the royal couriers are dispatched, right? So uh, listen, and you can hear Haman's rage, you know? The order is to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. And in this case, if you're wondering what all is, he goes on to say, the young, the old, the women, the little children, the boys, and the girls. Because he disrespected me. We're going to kill, annihilate, destroy all the Jews, women, children, old people, babies, boys, girls, because one guy disrespected me. I mean, it still happens today, only they're limited in how much destruction they can do after they say, no one disrespects me like that. Right? They're limited. If they could, they would do exactly. I mean, if they had a signet ring, we'd all be dead, right? But they don't, thankfully. But this dude did. This thug, no one disrespects him, and you're all going to (laughs) die. He had the honko, but God had a bigger honko. So here's the deal. So here's the deal. And, and you know what kills me? Verse 15 kills me. The callousness of no one disrespects me. Now, after he's done the deed, you know, he's going to, uh, he's going to sit down and have a few brewskis. Oh, the hottest layers of hell are reserved for people like that. I'm just not, my sympathy card gets ripped up right there when you do things like that. So here's the deal. The day the news uh, broke out, that day happens to be the day before Passover. Now, the timing of that. So everybody in the capital of of Persia there, all those Jews, and everybody's going to hear they are getting ready to celebrate what? Passover. Passover is commemorating the greatest rescue of the Jews by God as the Egyptian superpower and all their chariots were bearing down on them, just people with sticks and, and, and staffs and livestock and kids and nothing much more than that and a Red Sea cul-de-sac, right? So they're getting ready to celebrate that. 
to remember, to offer prayers, to read all of that, that scripture, right? And then they hear, you're all going to die. You'd be slated for execution on this date. The question will be to every Jew, is God big enough to save you again, right? He allowed it to happen right at the right time when they're, when they're remembering and they're praising God and they're, and they're thinking about these great things, their rescue. Our question, too, right, is always, because the, the edict has gone out. The edict has gone out on you, the devil, to, in, in, the, in the regions of the heavenlies, has put a hit out on God's people. That would be you. Your enemy, the devil, the, the Bible says, right? So there's been a decree against you and your family and the ministry that you do. But God is working. And so when you're challenged and when you're threatened, are you able, like the Jews, the day before Passover, they have to think, they have to say, this is reality, this is the threat, this is the fear that I'm feeling, but has God done something in the past in my life where his faithfulness in the past is the assurance that I have today and tomorrow and in the future that God is faithful. So therefore, there's no cause for anxiety or fear, right? right? His past faithfulness. You know the song, uh, the hymn that we sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hitherto you have been my help, right? Up until now you've been my help. The Ebenezer is a Hebrew word that means up until now, God has been my help. And, and it was used by Israel when they defeated the Philistines, when the odds were against them. And God said, you know, build a memorial so every time you go by it, you'll remember. You'll look at the, the stones and, and your Ebenezer, and you'll say, oh, I have no fear about this edict that has come, whatever it is, in your life. And there are plenty of things that come, Right? But you're able to look back the last time God bailed you out of something, the last time he provided exactly what you needed, the last time he comforted you and gave you the strength to go forward with your life, the last time he healed you, the last time he came to your rescue. There's so many times, and I don't even, I never even think about certain anxieties anymore because the one cool thing about getting old, and there's only one or two, <laughs> is I'm building a whole bunch of Ebenezer's. I've got 36 years of little memorials in my mind that the Holy Spirit can say, yeah, hmm, this challenge is an awful much like that challenge back there. And how did that challenge go? Oh, well, let me tell you about it. Oh, man, you know, I, I don't know why I always go back to this one time we were living. I was a graduate student at Fuller Seminary. We had one and a half babies. <laughs> oh, oh, man, we were so poor. <laughs> and, and I was working full time and, and going to school full time. And we had registered for Medi-Cal to have the baby, to have Zach. And, and they made us... Uh, apply for unemployment, but I didn't qualify for unemployment. And I told them that, and they said, we don't care. You have to do it. If you're going to get this medical, you have to apply for it. So we applied for it, and months and months went by, right? And one day I was walking out to the, the mailbox. We were so 
needy. <laughs> and I was doing this thing with the Lord. It sure would be nice, Lord, to find a big fat chick out there in the mailbox. I'm having fun talking, kind of joking around. I open the box and there's a manila envelope, right? So I take it back, but it's official. It looks like a bill or something, you know? So I open it up and I pull out a whole bunch of checks. And, and, and I'm like, oh. and it says, dear, you know, Ross Ryan. And it says, at, here at the Employment Development Services, we, we figured out that you really are eligible for unemployment. And here are all your past payments. Do you? What? <laughs> I thought I was. And I didn't call and say, you know, you better check. You know, but I, I mean, it was a blessing, okay? But uh, I, I actually was eligible. But the Lord let it go like that. We really were in need. There was a whole bunch of checks on the table. And, and I'm just, but the funniest thing in the world is who's going to ever believe that I was walking out to the mailbox going, Lord, it would be really cool if there's a fat check in there. And the Lord's like, I've got more than one fat check. <laughs> I got lots of fat checks for you. You know, I just, so, you know what? When I'm in need, my mind goes back there all the time. And it's not just that one time. As you all are nodding your heads saying, if only you could just give us all the mic, because we all got a story like that and, not, and more than one story. Well, then please stop freaking out. How about every little thing that comes? Like it's the very first problem you've ever had. <laughs> Just stop it. I mean, we all go, yeah, 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 yeah. God was like, oh, we've got so many stories about this category and this category and this category. And tomorrow you're going to get the edict and you're going to roll it open and it's going to say, you're going to die. <laughs> or whatever, you know, you're going to be fired. Or, you know, she doesn't like you anymore. <laughs> whatever it's going to be. And then we're going to act. We're going to come all unraveled like God has done nothing ever in our entire lives. That's why he let it be on the eve of Passover. So they couldn't say that. So they're like, oh, the day before. Check this out. The day before they get the scroll, you're all going to die. What do they have to do that night? That night they have to celebrate the rescue of God. And, and it's a week long. <laughs> it's a week long, so they can't just, they just can't go like, okay, we're going to put this aside now, we're going to do the whole thing, read the scriptures, and, you know, but they have to do it a whole week, and God put it that way, because somebody at the table is going to say, hey, maybe the, maybe the same God that we're reading about tonight, who busted us out of Egypt with 10 plagues, and then brought Pharaoh's army into the sea and closed it up over them, maybe that God will be able to help us now with this guy. Amen? amen. That's what God was hoping, <laughs> that everybody would say amen to that. Let me give you my observations for this chapter, all right? So these are more like prayers. So I kind of pushed back, kind of thought what I got out of it, and then a quick prayer to God. So there's four of them. Number one, it says, the spark to commit genocide. 
began with one wounded ego, an insecure guy who couldn't live without the recognition and praise of others. My prayer, God, keep me, keep us from that kind of self-centered pride that has so much potential to do so much harm. Number two, now while Haman's busy plotting to murder your people, God, you were busy plotting to save them and deal swiftly with their adversary. So Lord, help me, help us to trust you to fight against those who fight against us and help us rest in your promise to protect us. Number three, like the Jews, we're your New Testament people, Lord. We're different from the whole world, every person around us. And that is the cause of many of our problems. Lord, help me, help us. Maintain those moral differences as your holy people and stand up under the hostility that comes our way because we're more like you than they are. And lastly, we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we know that there will be challenges in this life. Lord, help me, help us. May we always look to your past faithfulness in our lives to assure our hearts whenever we encounter challenges and hardships in the future. And let us remember to the pure, you show yourself pure. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you Lord, that we are blameless, but not because we are good um, by ourselves and in our own nature, but you've made us blameless, Lord. And so with us, you, you deal with us, uh, Lord, kindly and, and, and straightforward. So thank you, Lord, that we have a Father that we can trust. And thank you for your past faithfulness. And thank you that whatever edict that comes our way, you're bigger and you're working. And no weapon that is ever formed against us shall prosper as you have promised, Lord. And even in death, we live and we'll stand in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.